Well, welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and I am joined with Troy and my longtime good friend, Dr. Johnny Markin. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, Andy. Good to meet you, Troy. This is a real treat to be on with you guys today. Yeah, likewise. Great to meet you. Thank you uh, for accepting the, the the invitation. We're excited to yeah to chat with you today. It's really cool. I, I've listened to the AC podcast since its inception, and uh, you know the, the varieties of topics that we've heard covered in the last years has been amazing. So when Andy uh, said, "Hey, why don't you come on and talk about worship?" I'm like, "Worship apologetics." You know, where's this going? So uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. What was the very first inaugural episode? I have no idea. There, there is somebody out there that probably knows, but it's not me. I'm sure it's Steve. Steve remembers somebody everything. named Steve. Steve yeah. King. <laughs> it'll it'll be in the comment section later. We'll see. No kidding. Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, hey, listen, we're gonna jump into things here. I've worked with Johnny Markin for a number of years at North U Community Church. I love this man dearly. There is nobody on the planet that I know that loves worship and the topic of worship more than Johnny. Uh, and you have been involved in worship ministries for a very uh, long time. Uh, in fact, so long that there are some fantastic posters out there <laughs> of, of you rocking some pretty sweet guitars and some... Google was fun. <laughs> yeah, it is real fun. And, uh, and some in a pretty mean mullet uh, going uh, on some there. some good 90s hair. Yes, you did. And, Glorious. <laughs> and so I want to hear a little bit of, you know, how you got into worship. They kind of kind of give some background for our listeners as we get into this topic, because today we're going to talk on the subject of worship, going to get into some questions that I think uh, are on a lot of people's mind, particularly my own, and especially within the context of this pandemic. So before we get into that, though, give us a little bit of background of who is Johnny Markin. Uh Prior to being a worship pastor and an instructor in worship at Trinity Western, I actually spent years touring and recording while being based in Britain and traveling around Europe and a few times across North America and uh, did a lot of outreach doing music. I didn't grow up in the church and I grew up on rock and roll. And so when I heard early Christian rock music, I went, hey, this would speak to my peers. So I began to learn some of those covers, started writing a little bit of it. I actually began to write songs after I came to faith because I had something to say, something to communicate to people. And uh, music seemed like a good vehicle. And eventually that spun into a recording contract and uh, a chance to do some uh, touring and a lot of live uh, concert work. Uh, Over the course of the years in the UK, I was involved with uh, some church leaders and youth conferences and just leading worship, as it were, uh, in these places. And then uh, these people began to tap me on the shoulder saying, we think God's got a calling on your life for leading churches in worship like this. And they really mentored me into that and taught me what it meant to actually help lead a church in worship. And uh, that led to my uh, coming back home to Canada. My wife, Darlene, and I really felt God pulling us back home. We had our two children born in England, uh, Daniel and Jennifer, and uh, they uh, were small. And we thought, let's do this now before it's too long. And they get too rooted in their schools and in their friendships. And uh, also Darlene's uh, father was ailing uh, with some heart and diabetic issues. And so we came home, kids got to know their grandparents, and we have been plugged in here uh, in Abbotsford for many, many years. And over the last year, uh, God has 
uh, allowed me to go into a wider ministry uh, with something we're developing called Worship Leader Institute. And uh, we are using that to try and mentor other young worship leaders and to consult the churches on, you know, helping them form a vision for what worship means in their local congregation and how to set their worship pastors and worship teams up for good, long, continuous runs. Now, I know that that topic right there resonates with Troy. Uh, for, pe- <laughs> for people who don't know, like Troy is is also very much uh, engaged in worship and, and has a real heart for seeing uh, worship leaders flourish. Now, I don't want to take your thunder. Maybe maybe just give our listeners a little bit of perspective on on your heart in this, because when I knew, you know, we were going to be talking with with Johnny on this subject, I'm like, okay, Troy's got to be a part of this. We kicked we kicked Steve off uh, <laughs> of this one, which is ironic we because love you, Steve. yeah, which is ironic. Great be- musician because yeah, because Steve's a great musician and I am a te- I'm terrible. Like when it comes to music, I'm tone deaf. So, <laughs> but no, Troy, you should tell people a little bit about your heart for worship in this in this conversation. Yeah, Johnny, as you yeah, you may not know, I'm a, I'm a Christian hip hop artist. Um, I do R&B, but my my foundation is worship. I grew up, um, I grew up in the church. Um, I was adopted into a family of incredible uh, pastors, and so I've been around music my whole life before I had ever decided that it was something that I was going to ever pursue. Sweet. Um, but my foundation wasn't just you know concerts and things like that. My foundation was you know, the Steve Bells of the world, you know, oh, the, wow, uh, yeah. the, uh, the, the classic nineties, yeah, yeah. right, right. That kind of stuff. Like, um, you know, sheep and the goats. I knew that song when I was like 10 years old, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so I grew up with this very intense and intentional focus on, on worship as being, you know, v- very, very important, but worship as music. Right. Yeah. And, and as time has progressed, as my my own music career has started to really grow and flourish, I've I've started to see this. Uh, initially, I saw it in my own life, but um, this wall that a lot of traveling uh, believers would hit, and it for me, it really came back down to the dangers of you know putting putting artists on pedestals, the danger mm-hmm. of um, a lack of accountability on platform. Mm-hmm whether that was within the church construct or, you know, on the road. And it has become something for me that I've just become very, very passionate about um, in the realm of how do we mentor these people? Yeah. Well, and isn't there a, a dynamic that takes place there, Troy, where where you are leading people in worship? And Johnny, you did this for years on the stage, and, and really what you're talking about there, there Troy, you know, you, you traveled a lot, Johnny, uh, doing this. But there's, there's one thing between, you know— leading people in worship, but being a worshiper yourself yes. and, and what that looks like to, to attend to your own spiritual health. Because one thing a lot of people don't understand with whether you're traveling as a preacher, worship leader, or, or whatever, is a lot of these people are not are often not connected to a church. I think is what you're getting at, Troy. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're mm-hmm. not connected into worshiping themselves and often can find themselves spiritually bankrupt that, that develops in a multiplicity of ways. Johnny, before we get into things, maybe we should just mm-hmm. start right there. What did it look like for you as a worship artist to attend to your own relationship with the Lord and and make sure that you were still a worshiper? Yeah, you know, when we first moved to the UK, we were sent by a church, which was in Burnaby. And uh, when we got to the UK, we were working with British Youth for Christ and living at a camp 
that they brought a lot of young people into. And so we were kind of away from a lot of church life. And there was a church about 15 minutes away you know, over the country roads and stuff. And if we were in town and not away doing missions, we would attend it. But we hadn't really felt that we were connected to it that strongly. And we felt that deep longing, even though we had Christian believers all around us and co-workers all around us, even living at the camp as community, uh, we missed the regular meeting together of the body of Christ uh, for the elements of what God constitutes as worship in the scriptures. And so when we were together with the gentleman that became my real mentor, Chris Bowater, at a conference, we were saying we really need to find a home here in the U.K., and he said, you need to move to our city, Lincoln. Our church knows how to care for traveling artists. I've been one for many years. And and they did that. We moved to Lincoln, and the church became our family. It was amazing to just be rooted in that and to find that being part of the regular life of the body of Christ was not only healthy for us on a spiritual level, but on all kinds of emotional and physical levels that we had normality of life. And when the kids came along, we had community around with which to raise them. We didn't have to put them in the van and truck around Europe and everywhere else. And uh, it was really healthy on that sense. So for me, I got to echo that whole idea. I saw artists go off the rails, Troy, because they were abandoning local church and regular local church attendance. I really appreciate you saying that because it, it it gets really, really complex. Mm. And, I, and I find that sometimes the issue with people wanting to to really set aside their viewpoint on it as, as far as like being connected to their church body, a lot of it comes down to I think people are afraid of missing out on certain opportunities because they're not mm. consistently like trying to hammer on the door and open up the door here and there. But I found that even in my own life, part of the reason we moved to BC is because my wife and I, as we were traveling, doing music, we were realizing, man, we, we are not in a position um, where if something went wrong, you know, like if, if all of a sudden uh, a mistake happened or whatever, the, even the organizations we were working with, they're like, well, who, who, who's pastoring you? Does your pastor know you're here? Those sorts of questions started to come up, and I'm grateful that they happened before I had ever made an issue or made yeah. a mistake. But in my own life, I started realizing, like, why isn't this a, why isn't this a prerequisite? <laughs> why, why is it that this isn't normal? Yeah. Well, there's lots we could unpack there, and, and I'm sure we'll circle back to this this subject uh, uh, throughout our conversation. And as you can as you can see, like both. Uh, Troy and Johnny, like this, this is the pa- this is a passion, and uh, and I yeah. appreciate so much the way the Lord has has made you guys and and just the love you have for this topic. And there's people like me that have questions. I think there's a lot of listeners that have questions too when it comes to worship. And and it's kind of and I think it's interesting in the church that there that there is so much confusion over just this basic question of what is worship, what what constitutes worship. And I and honestly, I think if people were were to be were to be real about this question, I, I actually think that there's 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 inherent pushback on this concept of worship, and and I want to get to that because I think a lot of people don't really understand what it is, and 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 I think it in our 21st century context, if you will, we we I think people are a little creeped out sometimes by by worship, and what does that mm-hmm. what does that mean to worship something? Like we're often told, you know, don't worship that or don't worship this. But then when you you know positively say no you should worship God and pe- and, and people are like well I'm, what is what does that look like 
So let's mm-hmm. let's un, let's start to unpack that, Johnny. How do you define worship? So I think one of the difficulties that we have in the English language is we use one word, worship. And within the realm of worship, we might have things like praise or prayer and these other elements of worship. But what exactly do we mean by worship? And some look at the old English word worthship, ascribing worth to something and saying, you know, okay, that's what we're going to do, ascribe worth. And that seems like an, uh, an aspect of praise. But the Greeks, as always, had multiple words that they could use to describe what worship was. And so in the New Testament, we find words like proskuneo, which is one of the most used ones for a word that kind of means pay tribute or do homage to. Uh, One commentator said it means literally to bend at the waist. And so you have this image of bowing before uh, a figure because of their position. And so that is, you know, we we address somebody as your worship, you know, in some contexts, right? Like a judge or somebody, a mayor or somebody like that. Uh, Another word that's used, though, is uh, latreia which comes out of this idea that your life is worship, that you commit yourself to something for your life and you live for that thing. Uh, The Old Testament word in Psalm 100 was avad, which was like being a servant uh, to the king and knowing in giving yourself your whole being for that. But this is what Paul writes, though, in Romans 12.1, when he says, make your life a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. And he's talking about that latreia. And it doesn't mean there isn't homage being done, but it means that there is homage being done at a particular time at a, you know, in a gathering of people when, when you pay tribute to God or that kind of worship, the, the proskuneo. But the latreia is what happens when you leave the congregation. Are you still worshiping God? Do you worship when you gather? Do you worship when you scatter? Paul's writing in, in Colossians 3, 16 and 17 addresses that. He says, I want you to speak together and encourage and exhort one another using psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then the next verse, and whatsoever you do, do it for the glory of Christ. And so there's this idea that there's a lifestyle that flows hand in hand with the idea of paying off to God. But all of that is really necessarily uh, driven by a word called sebomai, which is literally fear in the New Testament translations, but it has that sense of awe, wonder, and even thanksgiving by recognizing what it is that God has done for us. If we think worship is our big idea, uh, you know, like that, that phrase somebody has often said, oh, let's go get God worshipped. You know, like, well, wait a second. It's not about that. It's the fact that he is calling us into this love relationship. The Trinity from time immemorial is, is, from eternity, perfect relationship. And God is saying, I've created you. Come into that perfect love, which is why he then begs his people. He calls us out into faith, calls us into his people and says, come together and let's just be. Let's be. And that's where that gathered worship that we talk about comes from. It's this rhythm that God says, remember the Sabbath. Well, we're not supposed to necessarily remember just the Sabbath law, but the principle of Sabbath, of gathering together as a people of God to remember and to get to know God better, letting him speak to us. Because as Constance Cherry has said, worship is a divine dialogue, a holy dialogue between God and his people. I love the way that sounds because it's, in a sense, it's not just random words going on and random songs going on 
going on. It's this, this thrust and parry, this idea that God speaks, we respond. God speaks again, we respond. Just like in Exodus 24, when Moses reads aloud the law and the people say, all that you have said, we will obey. You know, and, and the on the service goes until its conclusion and God sends them away again. And so this beautiful movement to this dance of worship between God and his people, it all flows out of this wonder, this thanksgiving, so that we will be able to do homage and do uh, life service out of what God has done within us. That explanation of worship, I appreciate so much because it it had very little to do with music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's a very interesting thing. If, if you were to ask the average young person, what does worship mean to you? Mm-hmm. It would be solely attributed to music. And, mm-hmm. and to a certain degree, fair. But I wonder, I, I guess that's my... My question, because why would you guys say that our perception of worship isn't unpacked more often and is just very, has been very tunnel vision towards just being the sound that comes out of a church? Because I feel like that's where a lot of people then get hung up is when you don't agree with the sound. It's like, well, I can't worship now. Mm. Three components when a church gathers. There's the, the content of a service, the Christological theocentric content driven by the Holy Spirit. There is the structure of the service or the, as they were, the dialogue, that shape of that dialogue that it takes or the content. Some call it a liturgy. What is the form of worship? And sometimes people argue over that. But what you're addressing really is the style of worship. And music is, it speaks about culture, the culture we're in, and it's a form of style, just like dress and language. These are elements, but that style tends to take over from the form and sometimes even the content. And yet I think those two aspects need to be almost more important than the style. That's how we communicate. But the other, the substance of what goes on in worship is important. So, you know, I I think it's important that music can be a part of worship. It has been from the Old Testament onwards. I mean, Moses and Miriam wrote songs to celebrate God's victory over the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And you know, so music has been a part of that. It emanates from our soul, our very innermost being. And God's given that to us to be able to to do. And yet somehow we take that which is good and we kind of overuse it or take it to an extreme. And so music in many ways has overtaken other aspects of worship. You know, do we pray enough in church? Do we pay attention to uh, the Lord's table with enough uh, reverence and understanding? Do we have good fellowship? Do, you know, do we confess sin and, and do we help one another? These kinds of things. Uh, Johnny, there's so much to talk about, to unpack here. I mean, even as you were talking, one of the books that just immediately came to my mind was Brother Lawrence's, you know, well-known, The Practice of the Presence of God, that, that mm-hmm. worship is this idea of who we are as people. It's, it's mm-hmm. something, yeah, that we do, but we take with us, as you talk about, where, where it goes into every aspect of our life. This is, mm-hmm. this is who we are. But now, now let me just... Let me just provide a bit of a critique, I think, that we potentially see going on. I think this comes to your point, Troy, where people often will assume that, you know, worship with music. In the church, let's imagine that we need somebody to become a a Sunday school teacher, or we need somebody to be a greeter or an usher or something to that effect. It can be very easy, somebody who's worked in the church for 20 years, and Johnny, I know you've worked in the church for how many years have you been? Well... 20 to 25, effectively. Yeah, long time. And mm-hmm. it's very easy to get in that mindset that I need a volunteer because I need to fill this role. I need to 
I need to fill this gap. But how often do we think of those who come to church as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that we are participating within that discipleship and that by them being an usher or them being a Sunday school teacher, Mm -hmm. that we're participating within that discipleship and helping them to become, uh, you know, a, a, a... and to grow as a follower of Christ. And so when you put that into the worship context, worship can just so easily become consumeristic where now worship mm. is about meeting the need of the culture that will draw mm. people in, that that fits with their needs and likes, that they like. And, and it's very easy, once again, to lose sight of that idea that we are in the business, the Great Commission, right, is in, we're in the business of discipleship. Yeah. Andy, that that actually brings up a huge debate among many churches in why they actually meet together. Because for many people, they take the Great Commission and say, that's why we need to have church, is we need to go preach the gospel and get people into the kingdom. And of course it is. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says the most important reason we meet together is to edify the body, which is discipleship and and growing as believers so that the church can win people to Jesus by their lives and their words. And so there's a a first thing that has to happen before the other thing. Mark Laberton, in his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, says that if we try to go out and do acts of evangelism, acts of mercy, without having that sense of God's commissioning on our lives weekly in that gathering, we will run out of our own steam. You know, we're trying to do this in our own strength. We need to go in God's strength, in His commissioning uh, by the Holy Spirit. So I think it's an important thing that you touch on. And when I talked about Romans 12, 1 and life service, following that in verses 3 through 8, series of gifts to use with the body to disciple them. On that note, then, I think it's interesting with us being in a pandemic that I've met so many people, maybe you guys have as well, who are like, man, I can't wait to go back to church so I can worship again, sort of mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it's like, man, I mean, that's how much we've kind of bought into this idea where, we, where we've really lost sight of what worship is because we don't see it as a practice of who we are in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. For, for mm-hmm. many people, it is very reductionistic to an act that happens in a church building that involves singing of, of some kind. It's interesting you say that. Our church, we just did a, uh, a service down in downtown Vancouver, Jackpool Plaza. We did a Good Friday service just out in the open air. We were able to just worship and uh, encourage people and openly pray for the city. And, and it was a great, great service. Went really, really well. And um, one of our leaders was talking to someone who just passed by. And it was a, they were a fellow Christian. And they came over to them and were just like, so grateful. Thank you so much for doing this. We're so blessed. We haven't been able to worship in over a year. And I was just, you know, we were like, "Uh, wait a minute. You haven't worshiped God in over a year? Like, even that concept to me was like, (laughs) oh, you mean in church? Okay. Yeah. But even the fact that there is that void because you couldn't meet physically there's all of a sudden this void of worship in your life. And I think that's, uh, that, that's pretty telling to me. Yeah. Johnny, let me, let me push this idea of worship a little bit, because I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that really squirm, especially within our individualistic, narcissistic culture, that, that we are to prostrate ourselves, that we are to worship and lift up some, someone other than ourselves. That, that we're called to glorify God. And, and for, for some people, I think that they would, they would argue, man, 
why why does God want my worship so much? Is 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 God that narcissistic? Right? Is is God that ego egocentric that that God needs my worship? That and, and then and then this idea, and you and I have talked about this before, Johnny, this idea of obedience mm. comes in there that that mm. you know we need to be uh you know obedient in in, in worship. That that uh I really think shows how how in our in our brokenness we you know we we can really get this idea of worship wrong how would you respond to this this idea that i think a lot of people feel sure i mean obedience has a funny meaning uh in our culture for sure and it it pushes back at individual rights uh when we think about worship and we think about those Greek words, especially sebomai and the understanding of what God has done for you, you realize that Christian worship, apart from other religions, is a love-driven response in recognition of God's offer of pure love. And it also flows out of this world understanding, worldview that Christianity has, you know, which isn't that we're perfect. No, we're all fallen. Once and a believer or a person comes to understand that we need a Savior, that's the beginning of getting to know Jesus, because then you call on Him. That's when people are, if you will, converted, and that's a work of the Holy Spirit to change them. It was a work of the Holy Spirit to bring them to that realization anyway. So when we understand that Christian worship flows out of that love and thanksgiving for what is what God has done— it's not so amazing. I mean, you think about the some of the great uh, stories of life when people have done something great for somebody, saved a life, or they made a, uh, a great contribution to society. They want to say thank you. People want to say thank you to them, sometimes profusely. But this is when you, when you watch uh, movies that portray the sacrifice of Christ, this innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you realize that I could have been the one driving the nails in the hands because I am a sinful person as well. Then you realize, God, your grace is everything. Your grace and mercy that are extended towards me are what caused me to come and fall at your feet. It's the woman who was forgiven of her sin who fell at Jesus' feet and weeped at his feet. Or the, the person who came and poured the precious oil on his head to anoint him for his burial. These were lavish gifts of thanksgiving uh, offered as worship but it wasn't this sense of God being a sycophant, or needing sycophants and being a megalomaniac and say, come worship me. He comes to us in the form of Christ and, and, and offers us this partnership with him, this, this, this friendship. Now, one thing I've heard you say before, Johnny, is that worship, and, you, and you're getting at this and saying this, but just very <laughs> succinctly, worship then is response to who God is and, oh, what, yeah. and what he's done for you. And so I think then a question that's just, just coming to my mind, and maybe listeners you need to think of, is if my posture towards God is not one of worship, perhaps I don't fully appreciate who God is nor what He has done for me. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think the uh, interesting part of that is that there is an immense amount we can do when we gather to immerse people in that continuous story of God's mercy and grace toward us. Because uh, sometimes we make worship about, about, hey, look what God has done for me. Uh, yet, 
let's look what God has done for humanity and for creation. There's a bigger story at play here, which started at creation and ends in the final restoration. And in between is the cross. And, and that's an incredible apex of the story, but it's still playing out to a glorious conclusion. Going right along with what we're saying, this might help our listeners. Um, I read your was I haven't completed it, but had was reading your article um, that you did for Northview. Um, how worship helps us raise our gaze. Comfort oh, yeah. from Psalm one twenty one, and I just I love how you just laid it out, and and you said these three things, just these three main points. Looking backward raises our gaze by showing how great and faithful God is, and mm-hmm. something like that during the pandemic. Mm. Through through all the things that have gone on this year, I have, you know, I think my wife and I, we have taken a very intentional role of like, okay, what has, what good has God done? Because it's very easy to look at, you know, just uh, immediately the news outlets and see the the cases mm-hmm. rising, the deaths rising, mm-hmm. the different things going on and, and just lose focus that God is still in control. And then number two, you said being reminded that God is with us in the present raises our gaze to see as God sees. And that is, that really is that worship giving us God's view of things. Mm. When you're pursuing worshiping God, it gives you the eyes for the current situation that, in, in the way that God sees it. And then the last one, looking to our future hope raises our gaze to a day when our suffering is no more. And again, that comes back to... Mm. Who, who is God to you? Is he the God of before, right now, and to come? And worship is the only thing that can really lead you there. So I just wanted to our listeners to really appreciate that, that that's this, you know, how worship helps us raise our gaze. And that's ultimately what you're saying. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's cool. It's something that's interesting, the aspect about worship, and particularly this concept of obedience. Two, two things come to my mind, uh, Johnny and Troy, and, and that is, first of all, God loved us. And 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 mm. I think this gets at that idea you you mentioned perfect love, uh, and I think God's love is 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 so unique in that God's not asking for my love first. He he's first giving His love and inviting me into this relationship, which I think points back to what you're getting at with this triune. God who lives in right relationship within himself and is inviting mm. me into that relationship, which changes the nature of what obedience is. Because this this is something that I've, you know, wrestled through. A, a lot of times when we talk about being obedient, you know, Christians or obedient to God or whatever that looks, I mean, a lot of us, and, and myself included, have this idea of, you know, the kind of obedience that my dog Wilson, right, that I demand of my dog, right? Don't poop on the carpet, right? <laughs> you, you you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's this like it's this obedience where it's like this is this is what I want versus the obedience that I ask of my children in that I I want my my children to be obedient, but it's it's not for my sake alone, right? Don't poop on the carpet because I'm gonna have to clean that up. But I want your flourishing. I I want your good. Mm. My desire for your obedience isn't isn't necessarily just for my good. It's for your good, which mm-hmm. really begins to get our focus on the nature of God and his love for us, doesn't it, Johnny? Yeah. You know, you mentioned the idea of obedience. When my kids were small and we were in England, most English homes had a little fire, they would call it, but it was a heater that looked like a fireplace, an electric heater. And you had to put a guard around it by law so that kids wouldn't wander up and touch it. 
But even then, you had to be able to tell your kids, don't touch the fire. It's hot. You will harm yourself if you do that. And you know what happens? Kids walk up and want to touch the fire. Uh, And this is the idea that if you're obedient to me, it will help you with your flourishing. I think that's very astute, Andy. As we continue in this subject of worship, I know, you know, I, I would be amiss if I didn't just bring up the concept of music. And I think, I think we need to talk about this idea of what, what it looks like, you know, to worship. You know, so, so Johnny, as, as somebody who's led worship for years, you know, what, what does that look like to you as you're leading people in song? Like, how do you understand that act? as a worship leader standing before church as as you're you know leading them in, in song how, how does that fit within the context of what the church is and what we're doing i think it's it's a blessing that we have music to utilize uh, in our gathered times of worship the quote that i keep coming back to from dr john whitfleet is that worship leaders have the awesome responsibility of putting the words of worship on the worshiper's lips. Mm. And so we have to step back and say, what is it that we want the people of God to say to him? And in fact, if if we look like the Psalms in how we worship, in the Psalms, God is speaking sometimes. Other times, the psalmist is speaking, and other times, the people are speaking. There is a tripartite uh, it's more the trialogue that is going on where we could replicate this when we gather to sing together in church. And so I'm always trying to be aware of what it is that the people of God are saying or what is God saying through a song to the people, like who is talking and where is the room for response? You know, so if we have revelation, we can have songs of revelation, songs that describe God's character, good songs of theology, and songs of response that say, in light of this information, what shall I then say? What shall I then do? You know, and so you, you take a, a song like The Stand by Hillsong many years ago. It's a song which illustrated you stood before creation and you did all these things. And so I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. You say it's a recognition in the theology of what God has done. Here is how I will then live. And I think that has to be a a really fundamental principle. Whatever style of music is going to make it into the gathering, it should start with what what is it we're trying to say? As we're talking about style, I think about the... the I, maybe it's the last five, maybe five to ten years where worship has taken this um, this move towards Davidic worship, free-flowing worship. It's It's a worship that has reckless abandon. It's not so much focused on a, a structure. It's not focused on being so concerned with a format or sometimes it, it for some people, it's literally a, a time limit. You know, our worship, we're just going to worship. We're just going to go and we're going to go and let the spirit lead as, as the phrase often is. And then you have other, you know, situations where worship is very structured. It's you know, you got Ableton in the ears, you got two minutes, 30 seconds per song or those sorts of things. And I just wonder what your guys' opinion is on that, because I know that this is one of those conversations within the body where there are mm-hmm. there are opposing sides to it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've, I've seen is uh, the pursuit of experience. 
I've been in uh, Pentecostal and charismatic circles for many, many years before I was at Northview, and I've, uh, I've experienced a great deal of what you might refer to as Davidic. When you said Davidic worship, I thought maybe they were passing out harps. <laughs> you know, like, oh. <laughs> you know, but, you know, like it would be really hard to define what that meant like in an Old Testament sense. But I understand the idea of the more spontaneous sense of worship that we just let this thing keep going. And I've been in lots of gatherings like that. And, you know, the, the, this song sp- uh, sparks maybe prompts uh, this, or maybe somebody comes forward with a spiritual gift for the congregation, a word of prophecy, uh, something like that. Uh, so you know, those can have their place for sure, but we, if we think that, that it becomes the perfect aim of gathered worship every time, we can fall into the trap. It's slightly narcissistic, but I'm looking for a spiritual experience that I can walk away with. And here, I think we fall into the trap of existentialism, is that if we don't take the longer view, like you quoted the, the stuff from Psalm 121, that the, we need to look backward at what God has done uh, and, and see that in the present because it points to the future. The Greek word in 1 Corinthians uh, um, 11 uh, that says remembrance, you know, around the table, it's a word called anamnesis which is actually an action of remembrance of something in the past that you do in the present because it points to the future. And the table of God is classic in that. So it's one thing to try and cultivate an experience in the moment by saying, oh, we're just going to rely on the Spirit uh, to come and move. Uh, but what if He doesn't? Because we, can't, mm. we can't make Him do mm. anything. God is sovereign. We can't have some formula that says if I do two songs at this tempo and use thunderous toms and a Holy Spirit pad here, suddenly (laughs) the gifts of God are going to break. God is sovereign and he will do what he will do. And we we can't manipulate that. There was a a, a church I attended in London uh, that had a great reputation of being this spirit-driven church. And a lot of my church, my Pentecostal church in in Canada came over to visit. So my wife and I went down to London with them and took in this service. And the pastor walked up and grabbed the microphone and said, now I'm, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and do something. And he grabbed the mic, told the technician, turn this up. And he started blowing into the microphone to simulate the rushing wind, thinking this was going to cause people to be touched by the Holy Spirit. Well, almost everybody clapped their hands to their ears and frowned and scrunched up their faces. And it was anything like a move of the Spirit. the Holy Spirit, I don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) That that was it. So we can't manipulate God to force some kind of experience. But, you know, I have a lot of friends from more established traditional churches, if you will, they're Anglican, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and they encounter God in their structure and form of service in deep and emotional ways. My wife and I attended an Anglican church uh, not too long ago down in Florida where we went forward to receive the Lord's table. And uh, it was the culmination of all the process of dialogue of worship that had gone on in this common, or you know, like English language, modern language liturgy. But then we it culminated with taking the Lord's Supper and my wife, who grew up as a Roman Catholic uh, and then moved into a Pentecostal church as a teenager, she experienced this and walked away with tears in her eyes saying, it, it's been so long since I've experienced God like that. Mm. So it's hard to put God in a box. One issue, though, that I think we have, and Troy, I see you getting at this, is in our culture, we tend to be very mechanical 
in the way that we worship. And and I'll be honest with you, I call it freestyle worship, by the way, Troy. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah. for me, freestyle, and by the way, there's a lot of people that, especially young adults who know me, and, and we will do uh, an event each year. We did this thing called Float Fest uh, out in Asoyas, and we'd always end it with what we'd call freestyle worship. And that would be, it was much more spontaneous about what song we would sing, uh, about taking times of prayer, uh, hearing people's testimony and those sorts of things. And and I, I'll be honest with you, those were always very meaningful to me and those those who participated. Mm-hmm. I guess that I always enjoyed that it that it was less mechanical, and, yeah. right? And and maybe you could say, well, it was a you know you change things up. However, this gets to an, an issue that I think a lot of people struggle with, whether or not they're leading a church or attending a church, and that is the presentation of of worship because we do try these various ways you know either to bring people into worship or to fuel that consumerism in which we'll bring things in like smoke machines giant hmm. and and lights and the like now on the one hand i think that there's a natural part of us that are each very skeptical about that because i think in some ways it falls within that mechanical perspective that we have that we're trying to elicit a response from people, and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But but then there's this also this part of me that kind of responds back to that and says, but yeah, yeah. but listen, the Jews would have used incense. They would have used smoke. They would have used a whole variety of other things that we don't use in worship. Yeah, Johnny, how would you respond? Smoke machine or no, no smoke machine? <laughs> Can you solve that issue for us right now? <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I, I really wish I could. I think the difficulty is when we uh, want to rely on the tools of worship more than making worship about God himself. I, I don't think if the lighting and the smoke actually contribute symbolically to what we're doing, and that's what incense was. It was a symbol of the prayers of the people rising up to the heavens. Uh, the, then I think we find the balance, but but often it's out of balance. And, and again, it comes back to what is the purpose of having smoke and lights at church? Is it because we want to recreate uh, a nightclub setting because we think that's what the culture wants out of us? Uh, or do they want something that is so countercultural that helps them engage with God, something that they don't see all the time? But this is, uh, it gets back then to the idea of the purpose of why we're doing these things and, and keeping the content, the structure, and the style in balance so that no, nobody walks away going, was that about Jesus or not? Mm. And when we think about worshiping Jesus, one aspect that you've already brought up, and I think is a good place for us to wrap up our conversation with, and that is communion or Eucharist. And this idea of what it looks like to worship God in this very tangible way that, in fact, is 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 a form of remembrance that relies on the symbolism of mm. bread and wine or or juice. Yeah, you know what? I one of the things I love about communion and participation is that it's a way for all the people to participate in worship. Uh, when, music 
can be divisive as much as it can be unifying. Because if people don't like certain styles of music and, uh, you know, you, you look back at, and there's either a hymn going on done in Gaither style and a bunch of the, the youth kind of, uh, <laughs> or you've got, you know, the, the latest thing thrashing with whatever modern style and old man Smithers at the back is just you know, frowning away, <laughs> arms crossed and body language saying, I'm not in. You know, when you're face-to-face presented with the beautiful symbols of Christ's death uh, and suffering, I, I think it disarms us. And it, it actually, it, it works within us by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus said, this is, the, this is how you are to remember me. You know, this was one of the, the, the beautiful things about it. We have two ordinances in, in the uh, Protestant uh, church, and they're ordered to do the baptisms and the Lord's table. And we don't quite grasp symbol in the West in, in the way that many other cultures do. We're much more uh, Aristotelian, concrete about things. You know, it is what it is. This is a cup. This is a table. Or this really is bread, and this it really is wine. What you're getting at here is this idea of metaphor. That, yeah. That we— that that within the Aristotelian tradition of just very physical view of everything, I think you're absolutely right that metaphor is lost on a lot of people. If anything, they're they're actually skeptical of it, Johnny. Oh, oh, absolutely. And and I think that's why we struggle with when people want to talk about the the body and blood of Jesus when we're just looking at bread and, and wine or bread and juice. you know. And yet the church has a long history of trying to help us understand symbolism. Uh, symbol is beautiful because it's actually something which participates in the reality to which it points. And when we get our heads around that, we're actually, oh, if I'm actually breaking the bread, I'm participating in what it's representing. And here is what we say is anamnesis. As Jesus took the bread in the past, we're taking the bread in the present and we're breaking it and blessing it and giving it and eating it together. And it's pointing until he comes. And so you've got this past, present, future moment, this great anamnesis, this this eternal nature, the eternal way of worshiping that just takes us above our own sense of uh, importance, and it really helps us to see. And Andy, the other thing about the communion table I wanted to mention is how multivalent it is, how it actually has multiple messages. We often will just take one of those and camp on those, like, for instance, we talk about uh, the Lord's Supper because we talk about his sacrifice, but the Lord's table, as it's called in many traditions, focuses on his return at the and our eating at the banqueting table in heaven. And so it's a future-looking moment. But it's also the word Eucharist is Greek for Thanksgiving. And it was Thanksgiving that his resurrection gave us hope for for eternity. But really, communion, the word we use in our uh, faith tradition, is all about the fellowship and the unity of the body. So you have all these four things. And there's one phrase in the liturgy that is said, which I think sums all of that up. And it is uh, it, towards the end of the service, after the the communion Eucharist is done, the presider or the host will say, let us declare together the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. All four of those things are summed up. We've got fellowship, resurrection, sacrifice, and return in one phrase. That's genius liturgy.
we just recently celebrated Easter, and it was one of these moments. I, I've actually been thankful for the pandemic in many ways. Yeah, of course, it's been a, a pain. Don't get me wrong. But there have been moments of insight that I personally have received that were courtesy of COVID-19. And, <laughs> and, and one of those, Johnny, that I was thinking about with regards to this was, you know, this Easter, we, we weren't really able to have services. We were able to do a few outdoor, you know, services. But by and large, things were disrupted. Couldn't do your normal, you know, Good Friday service, followed up by your Easter morning. And, and, I, and, and as I was just reflecting on it, I thought, man, we have really bought into so much tradition in our Easter services that, that I can't help but mm-hmm. feel like we have lost sight of these two ordinances. And, and what brought me into this is my niece asked me to baptize her on Easter. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a beautiful way to celebrate mm-hmm. Easter with baptism. I'd ne- I have never baptized somebody on Easter. I've never even thought about baptizing somebody on Easter because mm. I've always had, you know, this idea of this very mechanical way that we pr- that we do Easter, you know. And I thought, man, I can't think of a better day, you know, you know I, to do a baptism. I, I, I got to geek out on history with you, Andy, because in the early church, there were three points in the church year where baptisms were done, and one of those was Easter. The other one was uh, Epiphany, wow. which was the, a celebration of Jesus' own baptism, and so it was very fitting. And the other one was Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit and the birth of the church, and so you're incorporating people into the church. But Easter is the beautiful semblance then of the death and rising again uh, it, it was a perfect time. So that's where the season of Lent came from. It began as a season of preparation for your baptism. Hmm. It, it seems like we need these moments, right, that kind of shake us up and get us out of our, our rut, if you will, and we begin to see things afresh. Uh, guys, I want to throw yeah. this back at you as we, as we close, and that is the idea of writing worship songs. Because uh, it, I personally, this is something I pushed hard for at Northview when I was pastoring. Uh, I, uh, Johnny, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're— uh, going to side with me on this one, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I would argue, okay, I'm going I'm to st- take a step out here into the boxing ring, and I would argue that churches should participate in writing worship because of what worship is. If it's about remembrance, I mean, and if it's about the community, well, what what is what's going on in your community? I, I feel like we just get into this rut of choosing the latest you know, Chris Tomlin's song or whatever it is, but we've got none of our own voice mm. in the worship that we're mm-hmm. doing. Guys, there it is. I just laid it out. Who's going <laughs> to... So good. <laughs> and, and, well, jump, are, yeah, are you with quick. me against me? What, what are you going to say? I'm with you. I'm 100% with you because if you were to, you know, you look at the history of Hillsong. The, you know, they had a beautiful documentary that they, they put out. Um, the history of their songs literally were what was going on in their church. Um, it was messages from their services, from their their universities, things that were going on. There would be uh, messages that were given to some of the worship leaders or the pastors, and it was just like, hey, this is what God has on my heart. And that's how the songs were birthed. And now we're all singing them because they're great. You know, they've done their homework. They know what melodies and patterns are are popular. You know, that's why we have things like, oh, that's a worship pad, right? Um <laughs> It's because it's, you know, and by and large, Hillsong 
or you know even the vineyard the vineyard church you know the vineyard worship mm-hmm. there, there's certain sounds that we're familiar with and i know even for for our own church we just released our first album and it's it's like it's like nothing in vancouver why because this is from our house yeah it's it's songs that were birthed in literally in the middle of a service like we're a church that we have a we have a structure but we allow the spirit to move so sometimes we'll be singing a song but a phrase will come to you know one of our worship leaders that the that is it is biblical it is sound and we just we sit on that for a minute and all of a sudden you know we have people specifically in the church that their job is like okay this sounds like a song and they'll inscribe that phrase that might be a chorus that might be the start of a verse and we start birthing these songs and we just presented one of our first songs uh, the other day to our, our congregation and and they were just like oh my goodness this was you know they they were attached to it they remembered it they remembered where our church was in that time and it's almost like literally raising an altar to the lord hmm. i think that's really important uh most songs for the church really start in that sort of individual moment. I mean, I wrote this song as an act of worship to God, or I wrote this song for my home group to help us under uh, remember, say, the Ten Commandments or whatever it might be. Or then there's this sense that God takes a song and the shared experience is such that it has a wider audience and it might be mm. a citywide uh, song and it might be a regional song, might be a national song, and every so often you get an international song that speaks to the global church across denominations. But the percentage is so small that it, uh, yeah, it doesn't happen very often. We, we shouldn't make the goal of writing a song that it's going to be sung globally in every right. uh, culture, tribe, and tongue and nation. Man, guys, uh, I'm upset. Uh, there, first of all, I was hoping for a little more combativeness but but no i'm just kidding i'm kidding i'm glad you, no, you're, you're wrong andy you're wrong <laughs> glad you guys are great with me no i'm upset because uh i could just continue to talk on this i mm. i am just getting started on this subject there's so mm. much more that i'd like to say uh sadly we're out of time johnny that you know what that means uh you're gonna you're gonna have to come back to the show oh, okay because yeah, i can do that because <laughs> i uh, can do that because we're gonna need to talk about this more because i know i know my boy troy is just getting started as well if Whenever I talk to Troy on this subject, if I'm like Troy, man, like what's going on in your heart? What do you, like? What are you passionate about? This is this is what he what he gets after. So yeah. we'll have to talk more about this. But as we close here, Johnny, where could people go to learn more about you to participate uh, in your ministry, specifically this Worship Leader Institute? WorshipLeaderInstitute.org, and that's where I'll also put uh, a lot of my blogs, like the one Troy was talking about, uh, how worship raises our gaze, and I've been. Uh, writing a whole series of new blogs that will be going up there very shortly. Uh, I've been doing some interviews with the people at Praise Charts uh, on their YouTube channel. We had a really uh, fun one about liturgy and modern worship. Can the two coexist? And a lot of people took part in that discussion. That was really great. So we're doing a series of those. But worshipleaderinstitute.org, it'll also help you to find my uh, music artist website, johnnymarkin.com. So if there's a pastor out there that's like, man, I'd love to to engage more in worship. I'd like to understand this concept more and help equip mm-hmm. my worship leaders. They could come to you and you could help them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, we we want to serve three sort of groups of people. We want to serve worship leaders. We want to serve worship teams. But we also want to serve churches, church leadership, because often uh, church leadership, and I found this as I was ta- uh, teaching master's level pastors 
uh, you know, they're going to be future pastors and they're doing their MDivs. They didn't have an understanding of what proper worship theology is. They understand good mm. theology about God and maybe even about the church. But if if worship is the most important thing the church is to do uh, and and really be, then why aren't we paying attention to what God says about it? And so want to help uh pastoral leaders as much as worship leaders understand this ministry of worship and what it entails, why it's important, and and what does the Bible say about it? And that helps people with giving them vision for how they can build their worship ministries. Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate you so much. Continue, Thanks, Andy. continue Thanks, to do the work you're doing, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this week's podcast as Andy and Troy sat down with Johnny Markin to discuss what is worship. The AC Podcast is a product of Apologetics Canada, and we are grateful for each and every one of you that choose to tune in every single week. If you haven't yet, please take the time to subscribe to the AC Podcast on your preferred streaming outlet so you never miss an episode. And as always, love God, love people. The AC Literary Expedition is a new initiative by Apologetics Canada that brings people together virtually to explore ideas. If you missed our first AC Literary Expedition, we have good news for you. We are back with the second AC Literary Expedition. In our culture today, there is a lot of discussion around race and racism. One topic that has been gaining much attention is critical race theory. It's found everywhere, in the government, the media, the university, and the church. Join us on May 16th for our second AC Literary Expedition as we examine critical race theory and biblical unity. For more information and to sign up, visit us at apologeticscanada.com forward slash literary dash expedition.